Amen. Thank you, children. Thank you, Pastor David, for leading that and Miss Pat. What a beautiful time. We have some wonderful voices in our amidst, don't we? Amen. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Let's turn our attention to God's Word today. If you'd open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Today we're going to examine Jesus' words about the importance of our minds and our will and our affection. So we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount today. We're in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 19 through 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity now, God, to look at your word and to submit to what you have said to your people. God, I pray as I speak now, Lord, I would speak your words and that you would impress these truths upon our hearts and that Christ would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I love that. I heard, a, I heard an amen in there. I don't know who that was, but amen. Uh, well, there's been a long-time debate over man's state and the state of man's will. Is man's will free? Is man's will just a little off, or is it completely corrupt? And this debate has been debated throughout the millennia. Uh, from one end of the spectrum, you have the heresy of Pelagianism, which is simply that man is born uh, good and he has a clean slate and it's up to him to keep it clean, to the semi-Pelagianism, which means that man is sort of, sort of sick, he needs a little bit of help, but you know he can, do, he can do good things, he can follow God in his own free will, uh, to then the absolute, or the absolute sovereignty of God, Uh, on the end of the spectrum where our church sits, God being sovereign over all things, including our own salvation. But the debates have never ended. What is the state of man's will? Is man free to choose the things that he wants to do? Well, even in a Reformed Baptist church, I say a resounding yes. Man is free to choose the things that he wants. Here's the qualifier, though. Man will only choose that which is according to his nature. Man can never will and want that which he has never willed and want. Does that make sense? Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, wrote a wonderful treatise on this issue called The Freedom of the Will. And his main thesis is this, that the will is always determined by the strongest motive. He says, quote, The strongest motive is the one that appears most inviting and is viewed by the person's mind in such a way as to have the greatest degree of tendency to arouse and induce the choice. 
A weaker motive is one that has a lesser degree of previous advantage or tendency to move the will. Example, or in other words, that appears less inviting to the mind in question. So in other words, what Jonathan is saying here is that we always in the end do what we want to do. While we may think to ourselves, but I really want to do such and such, but I end up doing something else. Even Paul says this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do the things which I do not want to do and do the very things I hate. So which is it, Mark? Well, the issue is, is that in the moment when you make that decision, when you make that choice, you will always choose that which has the strongest desire and motive in your heart to do. And doesn't that play out in everyday life for you and I? If you're in Christ, you want to do the things that God calls you to do. You want to practice the spiritual disciplines in your life. You want to read God's word in the morning or in the evening or whatever time you have set to to do it. But oftentimes when it comes down to making that choice, what happens? Oftentimes you do something different, right? Like catching up on your to-do list or doing frivolous things on your phone, playing on social media and listening, or even listening to a podcast about the word. But in your mind, you wanted to set out to actually read the word. But in that moment, you made a different choice. It's because, friends, you had a stronger motive and a stronger desire in the moment and a greater affection for those other things. See, you will always do what you want to do, okay? So yes, you have free will, but it's only in accordance with your nature, your heart, your affections. R.C. Sproul gives a great analogy about somebody who says, I was robbed against my will, right? I didn't want to be robbed. I didn't want to give him my wallet or my purse, but I was robbed against my will. See, I didn't go with my will. I went against my will. Well, no, you actually went with your will, he says, because you wanted to live. So your will at that moment was to give up your money, your purse, your wallet, whatever it was, because you wanted to live. So that was your will. It's a good analogy. But the problem, folks, is that you and I know what we ought to do in our Christian walk, those of us in Christ, but we often fail because your motives and your affections for your spiritual duties are weaker than your affections for the fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you decide to do over and against what you think you should be doing, your motives and your affections and your love for whatever that thing is is greater than your love for that which you know you ought to have done in the moment. So what do we do about it? Many of you thought we were going to have a sermon here about God's sovereignty in salvation, but we're not going there today. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, your motives and your will as a Christian, as those who are in Christ. Well, what can we do about it? We can bear down, we can try harder, we can white-knuckle it and just push through, and, you know, we should be obeying God. We should give Him our obedience in these things. But it could be, friends, that you have your interests divided and your hearts divided in the first place. You have the wrong view in life. You have the wrong outlook in life. You have the wrong goals in life, and you are chasing the wrong things. 
as we're going to see in our text today, God made us in such a way that we are simplistic in nature, meaning our life and the things we choose to do, our successes, our failures, for the most part, are, are a result of a one-tracked mind. Whatever it is that we are focusing on and headed towards, we end up doing. We must learn of Christ's words today and set our mind upon the things which he commands. Because those of us who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit. You can, by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God, train your will to align to his, to serve him in obedience, and the result is that you will have treasures in heaven, as Jesus says here in our text. On the other hand, those who live in the world have a one-track mind, as we all do, but their one-track mind, their one chief end is to glorify himself and enjoy himself and enjoy his earthly treasures until he dies. As a result, unregenerated man seeks earthly pursuits, seeks to amass earthly treasures, money, possessions, fame, power, etc. And brothers and sisters, as those, if you're in Christ, we must renew our mind and be careful not to conform to the world in this area. So Jesus provides today in our text, he gives us a warning both to guard against greed, uh, guarding against uh, amassing and putting our affections in, in earthly possessions. Uh, but he also uh, gives us an encouragement or exhortation to set our mind, our hearts, and affection upon God and his glory. Our earthly possessions, the things you see and have and touch today, friends, are fleeting. Uh, they are here today and gone tomorrow. And too many Christians live in a way uh, that earthly things possess their hearts. Uh, earthly things possess their minds, and they possess their motives, and they possess their focus. Proverbs 23 and verse 4 says, Do not weary yourself out to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, the wealth, it's gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle and flies towards the heavens. Psalm 49, 16 is a warning. It says, Do not be afraid of man who becomes rich when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. You know, a preacher I knew long ago said that you'll always notice that you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Meaning the things that you have here today, you don't take with you. And Jesus here in this passage gives us a warning that we shouldn't set our minds and focus and desires upon earthly things. In, in the parallel passage in Luke 12, Jesus provides a similar warning against greed. He says in Luke 12, 15, he says, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consists of his possessions. And in Luke 12, it's a similar context as we have here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus denounces greed, then gives the parable of the rich man, you know the parable, where he builds larger barns to store his earthly possessions so he can tell his soul to sit back, take it easy, eat, and be merry. 
But God said to him in Luke 12, 20, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man, Jesus says, who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Remember that Paul told Timothy that it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is, you say it's amoral. It's, it's not good or bad. But we must guard our hearts against the love of it or even the love of the things which money can buy. So Jesus provides us here with the answer on how we do that as a Christian and throughout this passage and the rest of chapter 6. But as we dive into the text, I want to provide sort of a running start that really helps provide the context, okay? So the context, we're in the Sermon of the Mount. This is within Matthew's Gospel. Uh, there's an overarching theme of the Gospel of Matthew as presenting Jesus as the King and presenting him with the kingdom. Jesus is the king of the Jews, and Matthew is emphasizing that throughout the entire gospel. The Sermon on the Mount, although it's later in his ministry, it's placed at the front of Matthew. Matthew's is not very chronologically. Uh, he groups uh, these sermons in different spots of his gospel, and, and the Sermon on the Mount is in the front because he wants to declare that Jesus is the king, He's brought a kingdom, and here are who are in the kingdom. These are the people in the kingdom. And the theme is having internal righteousness, not external. So you have verses 1 through 11, the Beatitudes, where Jesus says who is in the kingdom. Those are who are poor in spirit. Those who realize that they are bankrupt. They have nothing to offer God those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, these beatitudes are, are for the most part internal markings of those who are truly in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is an idea of, of mourning over your sin, knowing that you're bankrupt, you have nothing to offer God. So at the very beginning, Jesus says, I have brought the kingdom, and here are the people who are in my kingdom with the Beatitudes. And so Jesus, then in verses 13 to 16, he says, um, he describes how those that are in the kingdom live in relation to God's world as salt and light of the world. Then verses 21 to 48, as you go through the text, Jesus then describes how those who are in the kingdom live in relation to his law. I went through those in a number of sermons. And then chapter 6, Jesus says how those that are in the kingdom live in relation to God's presence, the very presence of God the Father. So verses 1 through 18, he goes through uh, living the Christian life for God's glory, having the right motives for doing the right things for the right reasons. And then we're in verses 19 through 20, which is living the Christian life with a narrow focus and a single goal. Then the rest of chapter 6, just to go up ahead, we want to look at this. In, in verse 25, it says, For this reason I say to you, and the rest of the chapter, Jesus addresses not to be anxious about being provided for, that your heavenly Father will provide for you. 
So he gives the verse we're looking at today uh, in verse 25 for this reason. So he's actually addressing two different issues here. In the text today, he's addressing focusing on building earthly treasures and focusing your motives, your heart, your affection on amassing earthly things. And then the rest of the chapter, verse 25 to 34, he then addresses not to be worried about not having anything and not being provided for. So our text today, uh, in verse 19 through 20, uh, excuse me, 19 to 24, actually provides a summary of what I just went through in the first 18 verses. You will either live for man, you will either live for uh, the rewards that man can give, you either live for being recognized by man and doing things so that you be seen by men. Uh, in the same way, you're going to live to store up earthly treasures, earthly rewards, or you will live for Christ and store heavenly treasures and heavenly rewards. So verses 19 through 24, there's three illustrations that Jesus gives. The treasures, then he gives the illustration of the eye being the lamp of the body, then he gives the illustration of serving two different masters. And he does this in the same way he did in the previous, uh, previous verses. He's giving three illustrations to prove one point. He's giving three illustrations here depicting two ways to live. Again, he's using multiple illustrations to communicate one point. And the point is the summary of the three previous illustrations where he was condemning pride, spiritual pride, and describing how those in the kingdom uh, live in the presence of the omnipresent Father. So these three examples, treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. The eye is the lamp. It's either of the body. It's either clear or it's evil, good or bad. Then serving God or serving wealth, not both. So I decided to group these two to get these three together because I see Jesus uh, illustrating these three different things to prove one point. And it sets the foundation, as I said, for the rest of the chapter on Jesus' instruction not to be worried about earthly things, earthly needs, which we'll dive into in the upcoming weeks. Then he closes this section in verse 33. He sums it up but says, But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So there's three things I want to show you in our text today, verses 19 through 24. The first thing is this, because what we do begins with our motives. As I said in my introduction, our will, our affections, those are the things we want to do. Because what we do begins with our motives. We must live with a single eye towards Christ. We must live with a single eye or a single focus towards Christ. We must live with a, a consciousness towards the Father and His glory. I'm actually going to start in verse 22. Look at the text with me. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that dark is the darkness now this has kind of thrown some people for a loop and if you've ever read this you know sitting in the in you know your morning chair and reading like what is what is jesus talking about here right well if your eye is clear the word for clear i'm gonna try to explain this to you because it fits in with both treasures in heaven treasures on earth 
and serving God or serving wealth, not both, okay? Uh, so if your eye is clear, the word for clear is only used two times in the New Testament, and it's an adjective. It means to be simple or whole or sound. And this expression, if your eye is clear, it's actually an expression that's used in the Greek language. It's used figuratively to mean a singleness of purpose or looking with a direct intent or having a simplicity of mind. Or looking right at an object. That's what it's used figuratively uh, for. Versus having two ends in mind. Okay, The expression is having one central object that you're looking at, that you're moving to, as opposed to having two objects where you're trying to waffle back and forth to each one. So Jesus is saying here that your mind, your purpose, your affections, your heart has only room for one thing and one Thing only. If it's on the right thing, heaven, Christ, God, his glory, then your whole body will be full of light. Your whole life will be full of the glory of God. That's what he's saying here. But if your eye is bad, your focus is off, your intent and your purpose is set upon the wrong things like earthly possessions, man's glory, man's rewards, doing the right things to be noticed by men, then your entire body or your entire life will be full of darkness, void of the glory of God. Having the right affections and passions leads to service for Christ, which then leads to storing treasures in heaven. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote another book called The Religious Affections where he wrote 500 pages on this point. And the point of true religion, he says, consists of holy affections. True religion consists of holy affections. Now, when he says true religion, we're not talking about what religion you may may think in our context, in our culture, right? He means true uh, worship of God. True walking with God consists of holy affections. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, So holy desire, exercised in longings, hungerings, and thirstings after God and holiness, is often mentioned in Scripture as an important part of true religion. Isaiah 26, 8. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord in all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. In Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as the, um, as the deer pants after water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God, my soul thirst for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, 1 and 2 says, My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Psalm 84, 1 and 2, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of my Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Psalm 19.20, my soul breaketh for the longing that it has unto thy judgments at all times. So Psalm 
73.25 and 143.6, he lists them over and over. Many texts point to the same thing, he says. He continues, such a holy desire and thirst of soul is mentioned as one thing which renders or denotes a man truly blessed. In the beginning of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And this holy thirst is spoken of as a great thing in the condition of a participation of the blessings of eternal life. Revelation 21, 6. I will give unto thee him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. What a powerful quote. He talks about the affections. What a man loves, Martin Luther said, that is his God. For he carries it in his heart. He goes about with it day and night. He sleeps and wakes with it, be it what it may, wealth or self, pleasure or renown. End quote. Whatever you love is your God, Martin Luther says, and I agree with him. Another Bible commentator, David Brown, puts it this way. As the conscience is the regulative faculty and man's inward purpose, scope, aim in life determines his character, if these be not simple and heavenward, but distorted and double, what must all the other faculties and principles of our nature be which take their direction and character from these, and what must the whole man and the whole life be but a mass of darkness. In other words, our aim and our faculty of our heart, every area of our heart, mind, will, strength, must be single, narrow-focusedly focused towards Christ. Then, friends, and only then, can we live in such a way that glorifies God, that grows us in our sanctification, that advances the kingdom of heaven, and that gives us courage to remain steadfast in a culture that's spiraling, spiraling out of control? Paul had this singular mindset, and he writes about it in Philippians 3, verse 13. He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Speaking of being justified by the perfect righteousness of Christ. He says, I, I haven't gotten a hold of it yet. I'm not there. But listen to what he says, verse 13. But one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, if your focus is right, then your whole body will be full of light. We must learn, friends. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we do this. We must learn to set our minds upon Christ. We must have an eternal view of life. Look at our example, Jesus Christ, who had a single eye towards glorifying the Father. And he had a single eye on doing the Father's will, not his own. John 17, 4, in his priestly prayer, he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given 
me to do. Even in one case where the disciples saw that he was hungry and tried to feed Jesus in John chapter 4, Jesus responds and said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his task. He had a one-tracked and a one-focused mind, and that was to glorify God the Father. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, says it this way in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, if you've been bought by God, if, if God has saved you from your sins through Christ, he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at, the right hand of God. So verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We must have a one-purposed and a one-tracked and a simple mind and a simple view towards Christ and his glory. But this is such a difficult task, isn't it, as a believer? We live in a physical world. Uh, we see, we feel, and we touch the things around us. And there's a temptation that we have, even as believers, to focus on the things that we can see because we can see them, we can feel them, we can see tangible results, and we can get gratification in having earthly treasures and earthly successes and earthly results. But we must not put our hope in these things that we see. Our focus and aim must be for the kingdom of God. Uh, we must set our things on the things above not on the things below. As Jesus said, not to, not to uh, amass earthly treasures, but to amass heavenly treasures. Now what this is not saying, uh, what this is not saying is to be so um, heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. We've heard that, right? This is not saying to stick your head in the ground and ignore everything that goes on on the earth and only consider spiritual things. That is not what he's saying. That's a false dichotomy. I've addressed that before. It's not spiritual versus secular. So he's not saying, hey, don't worry about the things going around you. You know, just think about heavenly things and don't address issues that happen within your life, within your family, within the culture, within the church. He's not saying to put your head in the pietistic sand. And many read that text even teach that this text is to not concern yourself with what's going on in the physical world or in the culture, etc. But this doesn't comport with Jesus' words earlier, where he said, you're the salt of the earth. Uh, you're the light of the world, right? Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't comport with that because to be salt, we have to have an effect on the world. And the light of Christ has an effect on the world when we go out and we live the truth and speak the truth outside the four walls of the church. Uh, pietistic living is not how God calls Christians to live. When we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, when we have our aim, our hearts, our mind, when everything's aligned to Christ, his glory, his word, it's inevitable that we will impact the culture around us. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be salt. Salt preserves. Uh, we're called to be light, 
shines forth and expels the darkness. We can't do that if we look at this text and say, you know what, we just need to, we just need to be quiet, you know. We just need to keep our Christianity uh, in, our, in our house and in, in the church. And, and we need to not speak in, and out in the culture and speak God's truth out there uh, because we just want to love people indeed and not tell them the truth of God's impending judgment and the gospel that is the power to save them. When we have our heart and mind set, when we have a, when we have a good eye, when we have a good focus, it will compel us or at least it should, it should compel us for love for our neighbor to stand outside the church, not literally, but uh, to speak in the public square with courage and to have the same mindset as Luther did when he penned the words, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. His truth will triumph. He has promised that in his word, but he uses the ordinary means of our feeble attempts to speak the truth in love, and God's truth will triumph through us. Christ established his church, and if I recall, he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We need not fear. We need not fear what's going on in the culture. We need not fear the vitriolic hatred towards Christianity in our culture. We need not fear the narratives that's out there now that is saying Christianity is more dangerous than terrorism, if you heard that. that those are the narratives going on, friends. You need to understand and you need to be awake and you need to listen to these things so that you can pray about them and, and be able to respond to them and not just stick our head in the ground. Uh, it should encourage us uh, that we stand on the shoulder, shoulders of giants like Martin Luther, who literally thought he would be uh, burned at the stake or beheaded for speaking truth to a culture that hated him so much. So it's not an either-or. It's not an either-or, friends. It's not either have the gospel and truth uh, and not this. It's a both and we're to do both. We're to love our neighbors. We're to love all image bearers of God by bringing the truth of God's word to bear uh, upon the culture with the gospel that saves, with the truth of God and his righteous uh, decrees. Uh, one example that I'm seeing this right played throughout our, right in front of me, uh, is the Greenville abortion clinic that I just mentioned. I don't like to call it a clinic. It's a mill. Uh, they murder babies there. Okay? Right now, as I mentioned, there's an opportunity for the Greenville County Council to shut this place of death down, to shut it down. There are babies being murdered in this place on a daily basis. Around 3,000 preborn image bearers of God are killed inside their mother's womb by poisoning, starvation, and other forms I won't mention here for the little ears. Our organization that I serve on started a petition to hand deliver to these council members during the next meeting. Myself and many other brothers and pastors have emailed, messaged, texted everybody, including other pastors, both locally and around the state, urging them to both sign it and share it with their people. 
And praise God, many have responded and at least signed the petition. But it's been very discouraging to hear that many pastors just ignore it altogether and avoid it altogether. Uh, one pastor who actually did sign it uh, told me, hey, you know what, what's the use? Abortion's just only going to get worse until Jesus comes back. Okay? What's the use, Mark? Just spoke, focus on the spiritual. Just spoke, focus on the gospel. Don't worry about all the stuff that's going on in the world. Can you imagine for a moment that there was an opportunity to close down a Nazi death camp? Wouldn't eradicate all of Hitler's egregious evil, but imagine for a moment that you could close down one of these death camps and keep Hitler from killing these Jews. I wonder if we would act in the same way. Could it be that we really don't believe God's word? Could it really believe, could it be that we have more fear of man than fear of God? These same pastors, I dare to say, would have said they would have stood against Nazi Germany during the Holocaust and spoken for these Jewish brothers and sisters, image bearers of God, to shut down a Nazi death camp. But I wonder if they would really do that. I wonder if they're not willing to take action now to shut down a place of death if they would have taken action back then. They may have been like those pastors who were in churches in Germany who were right by the train track and they could hear the screams going by of the Jews and there's some people who remember being children who can remember that they would just sing louder. They would just sing a little louder so they can't hear the screams going right by their church. I wonder if these same pastors and Christian leaders who want to be quiet on these terrible injustices like the Holocaust of abortion, I wonder if they would be the same ones who would say, just sing a little louder so we can't hear them go by. So this text is not an excuse to stand on the sidelines and be silent for these terrible injustices happening right before our eyes. And it's not just the sin of abortion. There are many other things that Christians need to be speaking out about. But the point is that this is not a text, this is not a, a pretext to give us apathetic Christians to stand inside the church and never speak outside the church. So while we can't be so heavenly-minded, we're no earthly good, on the flip side, we cannot be so earthly-minded either that we walk in the flesh and set our minds upon the culture wars and upon Christless conservatism. That's the other end of the spectrum that we can't do either. We can't be so earthly-minded that we're operating in the flesh. Everything starts in the heart. Everything starts in the mind. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. So my question to you today is what consumes your heart? What consumes your thinking? What consumes your motives, your passions in life? If you're the provider of your home, it might be for providing from your family. And that's a good thing, but it must not be the first and foremost aim in your life. Moms, while you're uh, uh, training, while you're uh, schooling, while you're seeking to lead your children to Christ, while that's good and necessary, 
It must not be your ultimate aim, passion, and motive. It must be Christ and his glory while also doing these other things for his glory. And while you're doing ministry, evangelism, whatever it is, discipleship, all that is good and necessary, and that in and of itself must not be your ultimate aim and your ultimate desire. Your ultimate aim and your ultimate affections, your ultimate desire and pursuit in life, friends, must be Christ and Christ himself. Amen? Then and only then are you in the sweet spot of the Christian walk. Then and only then can you truly serve the king as he has required in his word. Which leads me to my next point. These, these next two will come quick. When we do live with a single eye towards Christ, then and only then can we become faithful servants of the king. Look at verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So it's the same idea as in the preceding verse. There's only one option, folks. You can either serve God or serve stuff. Now, Jesus uses some very strong words here. He says, You either hate the one, and that word hate is a strong word in the Greek for hate. Or you'll love the other, and that's agape in the Greek. Either, there's not either or. You're either going to be devoted for, to the one, which means to cling fast, or, and despise the other, which means to disdain. You can only have one master. You will only serve God or wealth. Now, in the text where he says serve, you only serve two masters, that is not the usual word uh, for serving. This word actually comes from doulos, which means slave. It's a type of service that means a slavish type of service. You can only serve one of two masters. And friends, you will serve somebody. You will be a slave to someone or something. And it's either to God or wealth. And wealth there is mammon. It's not the usual word for wealth or riches either. But it's a word that carries the idea it was known uh, as not only wealth and, and earthly things, but it was also known uh, as, it's a noun, as something that's being trusted in, almost deifying the wealth or the riches. So you're only going to serve one or two things. You're only going to be a slave to God and his righteousness or a slave to your earthly stuff, your wealth, your money, your possessions. So when you're living for worldly treasures, you cannot live with a single eye for the kingdom of God. Of God. He says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you're focusing on earthly things, friends, it just draws your heart to more earthly things. Those who've been bought with a price, redeemed from the wrath of God, if you've been freed from the slavery of sin, the Bible says now you're a slave of righteousness and you cannot be a slave to Christ while you're at the same time being a slave to earthly possessions. So it begs the questions, what are you living for, brothers and sisters? What does your heart yearn for? What are your affections in life? That will be whom you serve as a slave. Most people are slaves to their stuff. Most people are a slave to getting more materialistic things. They're slaves to debt, to buy more stuff. And then they have to slavishly work harder 
to pay off the debt that they used to amass their earthly treasures. So only when we have the right mindset, a single eye towards Christ, can we become true servants and serve God as he has required. And the last point is at the beginning of our text we're going to address. When we become faithful servants of the king, uh, when we have a right mindset to Christ, when we become faithful servants of the king, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And here we end where we started in verse 19 through 20, where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, he says, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. So remember what Jesus just taught in the preceding verses. Not to do the right things for the wrong reasons, to be seen by men. Those who do get their reward in full, the reward of being seen by others, right? But those who do the right thing for the right reasons, for the glory of God, he says, will receive heavenly rewards. And this is what it means to store treasures in heavens, brothers and sisters. While we don't work for the rewards, we're promised rewards when we get to heaven. Being saved should be enough for you and I. It's enough for me. You should not care about the rewards, but find your satisfaction in pleasing your Father in heaven. Yet our Father also promises rewards, not for our external performance. Remember what we taught before. It's not about your external performance only, but about your motives as to why you chose to do that thing. But we get, we are promised rewards when we obey Christ from the heart, when we grow in our sanctification. So in conclusion, I want to ask you again, friends, what occupies the affections of your heart? Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 4, 23. What occupies your affections? Is it the glory of God? Is it the advancing of Christ's kingdom and his gospel? Is it the weakening of your own sin and growth and holiness? Is it growing in the fear of God? Or does your heart fear man? Does your heart fear what man thinks? How man may react to you? Or does your heart yearn for more earthly possessions, for comfort and security? To make your life easier, more comfortable? Do you look for and find your satisfaction in your stuff? If you do, this is a sign of a heart that is not right with God. And listen to me, if there's not an internal struggle for you, then you may in fact not even be saved. But if it is an inward struggle, you realize you go astray in that area. You put your comfort in having more possessions, or you put your comfort in trying to work to get more possessions, but you know you ought not to be. Well, I ask you as a brother or sister, as a brother in Christ, to repent because that does not pleasing to God. And when you repent, fix your eyes upon Christ and confess to the Lord Jesus that you're finding your satisfaction in the wrong thing, 
in earthly pursuits, in earthly things. Go ahead and confess it to him and then ask him by his grace to change your heart so that you would rely solely upon him and yearn solely for him and that you would have an eye that's single-minded towards Christ. So you could say like Paul, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, look ahead, I press forward for the prize. Let us be like Christ, always seeking to glorify God in everything that we say and do. And when we mess up, because we will, when we fall short, when we start finding satisfaction in earthly possessions or fearing man more than fearing God, when we do that, Christ is right there ready for you to confess it again, repent again, seek cleansing again, and to grow you to be more like Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, that you have given us your word, that your word changes us, Lord. I thank you for texts like these to reorient our hearts, Lord, as followers of Christ, to set our mind not on man's ways, not on man's thoughts, but on God's ways, God's thoughts, God's glory. Lord, I pray for those of us that have struggled in this area, Lord, of finding satisfaction in earthly possessions or having affections uh, towards earthly things. Lord, I pray that you would bring us uh, to confess it and repent and help us, God, to to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us, Lord, to set our minds on things above and not the things of the earth so that we can serve you, Father, that we can serve you in gladness and joy, that we could uh, store treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth. Father, you say that where our treasure is, there our heart is also. Father, let us, help us to yearn to store treasures in heaven. Help us yearn to have a heart that knows that our citizenship ultimately is with you in heaven that would compel us to live obedient to your word. We thank you. We give you honor and praise.